everybody. Chris Webster here to talk about one of the latest supporters to the Archaeology Podcast Network, The Motley Fool. Now, I've been investing in the stock market through various applications for a few years now, and everybody who's listening to this can benefit from that sort of investment for the long-term financial planning. And also, I know the hosts of these podcasts can benefit because as archaeologists, like none of us get retirement, <laughs> we all have to kind of fend for ourselves. So investing in the stock market is a good idea, but not everybody can do it. And look, we get it. The market is complicated and confusing, and to many of us, it simply doesn't make sense. In fact, where do you even start? Take all of the guesswork out of it with the Motley Fool Stock Advisor. The Motley Fool has been around for over 25 years and has been spot on in recommending some of the world's most important companies before they hit the big time. I'm talking about Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, Starbucks, all before they exploded in value. With their easy to use and super informative service, Stock Advisor, you could join the ranks before they potentially find the next big thing. After all, their average stock recommendation is up over 400% as of April 10th, 2023. And no need to be intimidated by financial jargon or market complexities. As the name suggests, these guys don't take themselves too seriously. Now, finances, that's a different story. Their friendly and relaxed approach has helped over 700,000 people move closer to financial independence, all while beating the market and having fun. New members can access Stock Advisor for only $89 for their first year, a full $110 off the full list price. Don't sit on the sidelines and think about what could have happened. Visit fool.com slash APN to start your investing journey today. That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips, we have trainings, exercise, we do research, and in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja, California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts, and also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations, since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Hello out there in Archaeology Podcast. Lynn, this is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. And this is episode 104 with Eleni Moore, professional artist, talking about her experiences, insights, and wisdom regarding the great mural rock art of Sierra de San Francisco. This is a, a wondrous chapter. Very different, interesting, endlessly engaging. Hi, all you friends and people who are interested in rock art studies and a little bit of adventure. We are blessed and honored. This is a real treat to have Eleni Moore with us. She is a professional artist, someone who's uh, dedicated her life and 
many decades of her time to studying the great mural rock art in Baja, California that we've talked about so much on this program. Some of the largest and most beautiful prehistoric paintings in the world. Eleni, are you with us? Yes, I am. Thank you. Praise the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I am telling you, this, this digital world of ours, miraculous, isn't it? So where, where are you uh, connected to us? You're down there in, in Southern Cal, SoCal? I am in Idlewild. Idlewild. And where is Idlewild, California? It's up on top of the San Jacinto Mountains on okay. the highway between Palm Springs and Hemet. Oh, beautiful. So I'm a mile above sea level, and it's a beautiful day here. And we're sitting out on the patio of the local coffee house. There's almost nobody here, and it's just perfect. Gorgeous, gorgeous. So we're going to talk a bit about your adventure with the uh, Sierra de San Francisco and the great mural rock art, the uh, Grandes Morales de Sierra de San Francisco in uh, the peninsula of Mexico. El arte represente. Yes, yes. Yeah. So the way I usually kick this off, going to tell us about yourself a little bit and how you ever got involved with the uh, study of Native Americans, rock art, art in general, and uh, your passion. Kick it off. Okay. Uh, To begin with, I was at Art Center College of Design as a graduate student, and I was looking for a subject that I could use for my thesis. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just felt like the world doesn't need another study done on Picasso or Matisse or anybody. And I was Mm -hmm. looking for something unique, and I overheard a conversation between some people. I was a newcomer to the area, and... uh, they were talking about Baja. I told them I used to do a lot of camping and, and I used to go do cave crawling in Carlsbad Caverns. And then one of them says, Oh, and I think the caves have paintings in them. And I went, Oh. <laughs> so I tracked down somebody who knew about the paintings and I found out. There was really only one commercial group taking people in. I avoid commercial groups usually, but this time it was necessary. At least I could see where they were, how to get in, and see if there was enough there for me to study for my thesis. And that's where I got in trouble because I went on that trip. I fell absolutely in love with the paintings, and they had everything that I loved most. It was as if though my whole lifetime had been preparing me for this. I majored in art and got two bachelor's degrees and one master's degree in art and painting. Wow. I grew up in partly Wyoming, but in the the Rocky Mountains. So Mm -hmm. I did a lot of camping, including snow camping and rain camping, but definitely wild camping. (laughs) So uh, we also had horses. And so I had to ride the mules to go to these paintings. I knew how to cook over a campfire. Everything was there, including art. Oh, and ranches in Wyoming. There were the ranchers, the ranchers' kids. And I had a lot of friends at the ranches and I used to go out to them. 
I, it was just amazing. It was like God had been preparing all this for me and just waiting for me to find it. That's how I got started. So it, so it suited you. What led you to art as a passion, as a profession? As a child, I I loved to not color in coloring books, but to do my own thing. <laughs> uh-huh. And my father supported me all the way through my childhood. Uh-huh. And I guess he just convinced me by the way he treated me that I was going to be an artist. Wow. And uh, so I graduated high school and I went to college and majored in art. And then uh, you you decided to... actually. Yeah, I actually minored in biology and uh-huh. theater, which is and a theater, okay. combination. And yeah. the biology was very helpful, too, because I, I could recognize the little animals and I understood the bugs that were crawling over me and, you know, dealing uh-huh. with living on the ground. And so that was an added bonus. And also plants. I had done a lot of work with plants and collecting plants in deserts. When I got there, my guide had uh, an aunt and I think uh, I think it was a sister who both were the kind of the medicine women for the mountain people. And uh-huh. every time we needed something, uh, then they would go out and they'd pick a plant for me and give it to me. Now, this is how you cook it. This is how you fix it. And don't drink too much of it. And it worked. So I got to learn that whole culture too. And because I was used to the culture of ranches and animals, I also enjoyed being on the ranches and getting to know the culture there of ranches. When I entered the mountains to do this work, the Mountain people were still isolated from the outside world. There were no roads in. And they had to do everything by mule. And they would uh, take, my guide used to go with his father. He grew up going with his father and helping with the mule train and burrow train to bring things from the ranches, goat cheese, wood, and that sort of stuff to the city. And then they would exchange that for the the essentials they needed, like sugar and flour and so on. And so I heard all the stories of that. I saw that all happening. And they were still making their own booze. And I got to see how they did that. I was in a, a crossover because as more tourists started coming in, the government started getting aware there were people in those mountains and they started they built schools for the kids and they gave the people cement blocks to build a room to mm-hmm. teach them how to do that so they could eventually expand that to a house so the world changed very quickly for these people i'd say it switched from 300 years ago to the present so it was very fast huh yes and that was for Big me shift. very exciting to see it because as um friend of ours, you know, Eve, as she put it, one time when she brought the guides up here to, who are the ranchers, up here to the States, she took them places in San Diego, including a museum. Mm -hmm. And one of the guides saw the bed in the museum from an early California ranch that Mm -hmm. San Diego had replaced. And he said, 
oh, he says, that's the bed I sleep in. <laughs> and he, st- he started recognizing things. Uh-huh. So it was, it was really a crossover. And then it was a coming into the new world experience for these people. She also took them on an elevator and didn't tell them it was going to (laughs) move. And so when it moved, yeah, they all hit the floor on all fours. (laughs) Oh my word. So, but anyway, that was, that was, that was a a surprise, huh? Yeah. So, uh so you made it down to Baja. We call it the Grand Canyon of Mexico. It is uh, some of the most unbelievable Francisco. Right. So some of the most unbelievable country you're ever going to see. Desert. When I hooked up with the crew that took us in on the, the tourist trip, uh, uh-huh. we went up to Palmerito first. And that's the okay. one with its 250 running feet of paint, painted surface. Wow. Had 400 or f- close to 450, I'm, I don't remember the number exactly, yeah. images painted wow. on the walls and the ceilings. The highest one is 45 feet off the floor of the cave. And I laid down on the floor of that to look at those images. And I just, when, when they called me to the mules, we were going to move on. I just came back shaking my head and I said, you know, this has got to be at least as good as if it's not better than the Sistine Chapel ceiling. (laughs) So you, you felt, you you felt right at home and you, Yes. You were uh, in, in your ethereal plane. Yes, in my element, for sure. Then uh, I guess what brought you to uh, the biggest cave and the one that's the central, I believe, focus yeah, of your research. Right. Yeah. Cueva yeah. Pintada. Yeah. Cueva Pintada is twice as big as Palmerito. And it's probably the biggest cave in the Sierra de San Francisco that has paintings. I'm not sure. I'm going to be talking mostly about imagery that I saw in Cueva Pintada. Okay. My way of approaching what we're doing today is really pretty simple. A lot of people have gone down there. A lot of people, tourists, archaeologists, historians, art art historians, and so on. There were people coming in. There's a lot of interest. A lot of people have seen the images on the Internet and various people's websites and so on. Not very many of them were actual researchers. Right. And so they take it upon themselves to give a report to and correct Wikipedia Mm-hmm. But they don't know what they're talking about because they really haven't experienced it. What I've experienced is the, what it's like to live there, live with the paintings, live with the world of the artists, and live with the ranchers and how they survive. I learned about how to uh, use my stomach as a canteen and fill it up with water as well as my canteen before walking out the door to start a trip. And I learned that from the ranchers. Uh, so it's that kind of stuff, how to survive. And, and then when to actually do work. I understand now why the Mexican siesta happened, because it's so hot in the desert in the midday. You'd make yourself sick if you did labor 
then. So it's better to just relax. In our country, I've lived along the border states most of my life. That includes New Mexico and Arizona. And in our country, there's this uh, tourist postcard that was really popular of the Mexican laying down and leaning against a saguaro cactus and his sombrero tipped over his head and he's sleeping. It's a siesta picture. And it was also kind of a cartoon. And people tended to get the idea that the Mexicans were lazy people. Well, they just had to live with them for a while to find out because they get up in the morning. These people at the ranches still today, they get up in the morning about 3, 3.30. They've already had a cup of coffee and a tortilla, got their mule saddled on the trail and going out and grounding up all of their herds of goats and bringing them in at, at four o'clock. And then they got all of them in by at least 8.30 or 9. They get them in the corral, and then they spend several hours milking them and starting to make the cheese. And they don't stop until siesta time. And then <laughs> they have their siesta, and then after that, they do the same thing. They have to go, go out and bring them in again, get them close to home, and do all of this other work that they have to do for a ranch. And so they get to bed by about 10 o'clock at night. Anybody that lives on that kind of schedule and does manual labor is not lazy. No, there's nothing lazy about about uh, Mexican-Americans, no. And uh, I've had the blessing of going down there several times and seeing what they go through and their expertise and their uh, strength and sophistication. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, uh, let's cut it off now. That's the first segment. And uh, we'll see you on the flip-flop, gang. Thanks. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Hey, gang. Welcome back. It's your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, with Eleni Moore talking about the great mural rock art on your rock art podcast. Eleni, so we were uh, reflecting and talking about... Uh, how to think about the Mexican people and their uh, sophistication and hard work ethics. And now we're going to talk uh, about your studies of great mural rock art in uh, Cueva Pintada, I would presume. I want to introduce myself in uh, so that you understand where I'm coming from. Sure. I am 100% a working artist, and I was highly trained at one of the best art schools in the world. And uh, I was taught how to read art. And so I brought that with me to these cave paintings. And when I began working on them, I came completely from the artist's point of view. Mostly what you read in the literature uh, about the, any rock art at all is usually done by archaeologists. 
and they don't have the same sort of training that we do now. That's not so in Europe. In Europe, they're required to take art classes, but in our country, they're not. So I didn't have anybody out there that's already done what I'm doing. And so I just began doing it the way I would approach paintings and stuff like that. And what I do is I do do a lot of research, looking for what archaeologists have said and so on. But I tend to think more about the artists and the artist's view. And I tend to see what, look at what art means to us. And then I discovered that I also have to stop thinking like a 21st century artist uh, because they didn't do that. And when you think about it, and what we have is our background in the Western culture of art goes clear back to the Greeks and the Egyptians. And um, art was considered to be something of beauty. It had to be beautiful. That was the requirement to be successful. Until a trial came along in England between Whistler and versus Ruskin, held in 1878. And this changed things. At that point in time, a settlement that the judge gave between these two who were arguing about art and what art was, the judge wasn't going to make a choice based on art. What he did, he just wanted to get it settled. So he paid something like two or three pennies to Ruskin, who lost, and he filed it for Whistler. And as a result of that trial, along came uh, some other people, they were artists, and they uh, said that what Whistler had done was establish that you could do art for art's sake. So the present world of art that you see now is actually based in that do art for art's sake. And now what's happened is that it has evolved to today. And today now it has actually become anything as art. You just have to call it art and then let it have the test of time and then you'll know whether it was art or not. And that's pretty much if, if you go to any of the contemporary galleries nowadays in the U.S., that's what you're seeing. So what I did then, from the era of Socrates and Plato, clear through Nietzsche and Whistler and Ruskin, it was beauty. So I'm taking my knowledge down there and trying to apply it to the paintings, and that didn't work. So I started studying peoples. Now, I have a, a history of, of working with the Native Americans because as a girl in the wilder part of Wyoming, we interacted with the Native Americans a lot way before it was the thing to do. And then when I went to uh, teach, I taught in a community college here in California. And one of the pleasures of the community colleges here is that we have a very diverse community. And so there were a number of Native Americans from all over the country in my classes, mostly because I was during the time period when we were establishing computer art. Mm -hmm. And 
We were the first country to be working on that. Mm-hmm. So other countries were sending their kids to the community colleges to learn English and to learn the new computer apps. Okay. And so I got in on that. that. That just worked real well. I tried to come from that direction. There was something missing. And I was telling my students about my work as, as I taught. They always got involved with it. I've actually had students that wanted to go down there and did go down with me. Mm-hmm. So I had this experience. I'm, I'm applying art, and I'm realizing that these people did not do art for art's sake. They would never have heard of it. In fact, these people would never have invented the word art because they didn't use the arts for their sake. They didn't use it for entertainment. They used it for the shaman's drama, for healing purposes. And so everything had power, all the colors. But not only that, the whole environment has power. Everything in the environment has power. And it can be bad power or it could be good power. So music, drama, dance, visual arts... They did all those things, but they would never have applied any of those words. Of course, I'm going to focus on the art itself, the visual arts, which they wouldn't call it. Think about it with the music world. The dancing and singing and so on. We, we, we're used to the idea of the hunter-gatherer societies doing those rituals for various reasons other than just enjoying art. Uh, well, they did the same thing. That The people at the cave paintings probably did not have drums. Nobody has found any, any proof that they ever used any kind of drums. But they had plenty of things to make music with. They could clap their hands. They could sing. They could clap sticks together. And stepping hard on the boulders, here we're talking about using the environment. Because it's a volcanic area, you can just walk across a lot of the boulders there and it resonates. I've had dancers on trips who went over and started dancing out of tune on the boulders. Also, there's echoes. Those canyons are loaded with echoes. And as if you didn't happen to be born now, but you were a hunter-gatherer, you wouldn't have a clue what that was, But except that you can hear it coming from the walls and you can hear it coming from the rocks. So they thought there was somebody talking to them. They thought there was somebody in those rocks. And you go into the Pintada Cave, and I literally mapped out what the different kinds of sounds were that I heard when I made clapping sounds. It's amazing. You can sit up there. This cave is 523 running feet of painted surface. Highest image is 35 feet off the floor of the cave. It has close to 900 images. And you can sit at different places in this cave. It stretches a long ways along the side. And you hear people coming in, tourists, on the trail who aren't even in sight. You can hear them talking. Wow. And when you're down in the canyon bottom, mm-hmm. 
you can hear echoes coming from the rocks from above. That's amazing. And so I thought, what I have to do is listen to the environment. That's what these people did. Yeah. That's, you know, and they made up their stories and myths around that. And so that's where it all comes from. Now, I started with with the, the art itself, but I also did some research on what little we have of their ethnography. And one of the things that we have is a, a lexicon of the Kochimi language. One of the things that I had found out was the shaman, when they were, the, the Kochimi shaman, if, if indeed it was a Kochimi culture that settled there, when he was doing a healing performance, he would grab the right hand of the nearest living female relative to the patient and chop off her little finger. And the bleeding was supposed to cure the patient. And if it didn't do that, then at least protected everybody else in the room so they wouldn't get whatever the patient had. So what was going on here? Blood was healing. And then I found out in the lexicon that the word for blood and the word for red is the same thing. And that fascinated me. And I was telling one of my students, who is, he's out on his own now. I was telling him about this. And I said, let's see, he's a, he's a Missouri Indian from Missouri. Uh-huh. And what did he and, tell you? And so I asked him, I said, what what?" do you use for the color red? What what word do you use in your language? And he thought for a minute and says, you know, we don't have a word for the colors. And I said, you don't. And and he said he actually had been, he had been raised off of a reservation. Mm -hmm. But as a teenager, he decided to go back in the summers and live with his grandfather and learn their language. Mm -hmm. and, and so... He just, he says, well, I'll ask my grandfather. Well, his grandfather said, no, there, there's no word for red. So I'm thinking it's quite possible the coach me, seeing how it's the same word, these red people are blood people. Yes. Lo and behold, I counted the fingers on, on the pregnant women in Pintada, all of whom uh -huh. are red figures they mm -hmm. have four fingers oh my word and so i decided they were probably healing women yeah yeah so this is how i work i also checked that out later there was a nice little book that was written recently on the california indians about the colors and paint and especially red which corroborated what i was thinking and then i talked to a friend of um, alan's who uh, comes to a lot of his little get-togethers mm -hmm. and presents. And she's a member of, which tribe is it? They're living in the bottom of the Grand Canyon. Oh, the Grand Canyon. Havasupai. Yeah, okay, Havasupai. <laughs> I talked to her, uh -huh. and and uh, she's not, a, of course, she's, she's an elder in the tribe. And she's not supposed to be telling people secrets, right? Right, right. Uh, and so, so I just brought out this little story I just said that mm -hmm. I didn't really uh -huh. ask to 
be told anything. Oh, my word. Mm-hmm. And, and I just said, oh, what do you think? And she just sat there and she looked at me. <laughs> she stared. She locked into my eyes. Uh-huh. She reached down in her blouse, pulled out her little medicine bag, reached in and pulled out some iron oxide. There you go. People call red oak. Yeah, the red oak of the hematite. And rubbed it on me. Wow. And I thought, okay, I guess I'm right. <laughs> well, that's that's uh, the second segment. Perfect timing. Okay. See, uh, see on the flip-flop, gang, we're going to hang on for dear life. We're going to try to finish this up in the third segment. God bless. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Talking about the great mural rock art of Baja, California, Mexico and using uh, ethnography and insights and her wisdom as a professional artist to give us some of the inside insights. Try to say that fast three times. Eleni, keep going. Tell us a few more tidbits, if you would. Anyway, that's an example of how I read the landscape and read the art. And so what, I'm, I'm going to skip a lot of examples, but I just want to say that the landscape plays a very important part the landscape has bottomless holes that they, they look like there's no bottom. The ranchers have shown them to me. And the air that escapes through the, the opening is very cold. Wow. It's almost cold. Wow. And yet we're in a desert, and it's that way in the summer. There are caves and cracks that are possible entrance and exits from the underground Mm. Uh, did the people really believe in an underground? Oh, oh, yes, they did. I mean, in a land where you've got volcanoes that actually are exploding. Active, uh, active volcanoes. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Uh, and, and then there's uh, hot springs below them. I mean, you know they know there's an underground. They have uh, cold water springs spilling from the, along the sides of the mountains, the canyons, and so on. In other words, the Mother Earth here plays a big role uh, in taking care of these people. Rancho Santa Marta is built in an ancient caldera at the side of the other two dormant volcanoes. Wow. So they have a lot of earthquakes, earth trembling, rocks falling. I was in one of the canyons during a really big Chubasco, and uh, big boulders were rolling down from the top of, of uh, La Pintada and, and the San Pablo Canyon. It was dangerous to be in that canyon, and the, the river down below filled up with water and flooded, and I was up in a cave watching all of it, so it's, it's, it's a very dangerous landscape, too. It has both the good and the bad. So it's dangerous, it's dynamic, it's al- It's alive, it's all those things yes. simultaneously. Yes, alive, exactly. That's a good word. So when you're there, it, 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 yeah. seems, it seems kind of quite harsh, 
and uh, challenging and unforgiving, as some people have called it. But perhaps from a uh, yes, you know, a, a preliterate Native American viewpoint, once you've lived there and grown up there, it's uh, a totally different environment, isn't it? Well, there's some examples of that from the ranchers' kids. One of the things that they do, well, the teenagers yeah. often go along with their guide fathers and learn how to guide. And so what they'll do sometimes when we're on a trail, they did this one time when I was at the bottom of uh, Arroyo San Pablo, where Pintada is. And it's one of the deepest, steepest side canyons. You don't want to get caught in a flood there because it's also called South Sea Puedes, which means leave if you can. And that's what, you know. Yeah. And and so these these kids were running back and forth and jumping. They were playing on the rocks. And so they're getting the rocks to sound wow. like, you know, they're working like drums. Yeah. At the same time they were yelling and and screaming and stuff to hear the echoes. So they were also playing with the echoes. Wow. And they did this all the way down the canyon to the site where we turned off on a side canyon. It was fascinating. And I'll bet you anything that those little Coach Me boys did the same thing. Did the same thing. Because that's the way the earth, you know, spoke to them. Yeah. They, they yeah. would think of it as the earth mother speaking to them. Absolutely. So, so uh, it really worked. The landscape is truly alive if you know how to engage it, correct? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So anyway, I want to make a jump here. Please. Uh, to uh, put a picture together of what I think is happening, but I haven't gotten all of my... Uh, I'm working on a book on this, and this is a part I haven't written up, so I haven't gotten all of the background research to, to support it. But this is what I see happening there, is that the... The people, we already know the people didn't stay in one spot. They were constantly migrating from the canyons down to the ocean and then back up to the canyons again. And so I think this was not only their sacred place, obviously, where it had all these fantastic paintings, but there's something else that's going on. I believe that the sun was probably the most important deity, if you could call it that for them, that they had in their repertoire. That sunshine, you're in the middle of a peninsula here. And that sunshine is to them, if they climb up on the top, they can see both sides of the mountains. They can see the Pacific Ocean and they can see the Sea of Cortez. And that sun comes up in the morning out of the Sea of Cortez. They don't understand how it really works. But to them, that's what they see. And it makes its, its way across the sky. And then it goes back down into the water at sunset. Now, there are instances like this in the the history of other hunter-gatherer societies, there's one in Europe where it's a really big lake and you can't see the other shore mm -hmm. from the one side. So it's, they see the same phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And those people believe to this day that 
when that sun goes down into the water, it sizzles, and they can hear the sizzle. Uh huh. And I thought, okay, that explains how the primitive mind works. And there's no way you're going to convince any of those people that it's not sizzling. Okay. I have a feeling that that same kind of experience is what the coach and me experienced. So we have a cycle of the sun dying by going underwater and mm-hmm. having to swim underwater and probably get its light put out and everything in the underworld and then regenerating and coming up full force and full power to be born again. Make his same trip again over to the other side to the Pacific and then go underground. Now, on its way underground, it is on the other side of the cave wall. Mm-hmm. And the cave paintings are on a veil between the upper world, the profane world, and the underworld, which is the sacred world. And I believe that these people, when I look at the paintings, I believe these people, the shaman, actually thought they were seeing the images of the animals and people they painted on the wall in the forms on the wall. Just like when you were a kid, you laid down and looked at the sky and mm-hmm. started seeing the clouds and shapes yeah. like Mickey Mouse or something. Yeah. And and so they literally saw them and they they believed that somehow the spirit of the beings that are in the wall had been on this earth and that's where the dead people went. Eve thinks maybe they went to the sky. I think that's possible. She has a good idea there. But they traveled down to the underworld. Yeah. And yeah. to come back to life to provide food again. Mm-hmm. This is not an unusual phenomenon with hunter societies. No, no, it's exactly it's exactly the way it is. Yes. The regeneration from the underworld. Yeah, exactly. And so I look at these paintings and I see that most of the animals are actually more like bas-relief sculpture. You can okay. see that the form of the animal was there first, and then they painted it. They bring it to life. Well, first they paint the uh, human beings, who are probably shaman or powerful gods or who knows what, but they paint Okay, so I'm trying to get the picture straight here. You start from the underground, and then you've got a wall that these spirits are going to sort of meld through by osmosis Mm -hmm. or whatever and make their form visible to the the other side of the wall, to the painter's side. Mm -hmm. Painter sees it, and then he, he paints... The image of the shaman, or whatever it is, on top of that. And then he paints the image of the animal that they saw making the form. What have you got? You've got a sandwich of the animal spirit 
the human or anthropomorphic spirit between the real one that they paint on top mm -hmm. and the form that was coming up from behind the wall. Yes. Now, could you have a stronger transformation ritual than that? No. No, that's fantastic. Makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, and I think that's what's happening. Yeah. How did they uh, acquire the picture, the sense of the forms of the animals in which, and, and how did that come to them? Was it some sort of a vision or was it, how did they see those? It was the same thing we do when, when we're doing cloud watching. They mm -hmm. imagine what They imagine them, yes. And, yeah. And Leonardo da Vinci actually talks about this phenomenon with painters that you can see uh, an old wall the wooden wall that's built around a property yeah. and it's been painted and the paint is getting old and it's chipping and falling off. And then he talks about how you can envision a battle going on there, mm. that these things will actually take the form of something that we know. And it's really, it's a phenomenon that happens in our mind and we call it in art, we call it closure. It, if you think of, if you put three dots on a piece of paper no matter where you put the three dots, we will make a triangle out of it mm -hmm. and we'll connect those dots. That's called closure. And the human mind has that ability. And I think that's all they're doing. Something that's very natural to all of us. So they're somehow envision envisioning the animals. I presume yeah, they're envisioning. Yeah. Because, okay, so the best example is the pregnant lady, the famous pregnant lady. Please. She has a great big giant boulder in her stomach. Yes, she does. Uh, I remember that. And she's she's red and she's got four fingers. and Well, she also has four stripes painted on her belly and four stripes painted for her hair. Uh -huh. Everything is four. Okay. Which is interesting because there's your four corners of the earth. Yep. Uh, so anyway, you you can look at that. And you can see that there is a woman, that everybody looking at that, if we didn't have the painted image, you would still see the woman. Yeah, she's because in the, the rocks. the forms are in the rocks. They're in the rocks. Yes, I can see what yes. you're saying. And so yes. that's yes. how they do it. That's so you, yeah, you, it. Could, you could picture them and see them and draw them out. Just like when, when you look down at yes. the ground or on a, or on a mosaic, something. Yeah. You know, where you have stone, yes. like in my bathroom, you can look down and I see the animals and the people. They're there. They always stare back at me. <laughs> it's true. No, it's true. It's the mind has a no, way. It is. Yeah. Yes, it does. Our mind is built so that it has to have order at all times. If we don't have order, there's actually a, a name for that psychosis. Wow. Because you can't do anything. You can't think. You can't study. You, can't, you cannot do anything. You have to have order. Amazing. And so our mind will find a way to make order. Make and order. that's one of the ways it finds. It uses closure. It picks up clues. And then it, it takes the clues someplace. Eleni, you got a minute or two. You want to you want to say something to our uh, listeners, as sort of a a way to wrap it up. Well, okay. I, I would like to suggest that everybody who is able should actually go down and and see the cave paintings. That if you can afford the mule trip or find a way to do that, you need to have at least a week. I think the best trips are two weeks 
because it takes a couple of days to get there and a couple of days to leave, and that's already used up half a week. So uh, you get to see more, and you can spend more time at the caves. And I think I think once once you go there, you're you'll never be the same. That's right. I've had many people on my trips. I used to run tourist trips to pay for my way into the right. mountains so I could keep my research going. Right. Anyway, it's mind blowing experience, and it's worth it. It is once in a lifetime. Never be the same. Definitely. You'll, you'll see the biggest, the largest images, some of the largest images in the world, and you don't know what well, to look at. Well, that's the other thing. The, the uh, human figures all come out to measure about six to nine feet tall. Wow. The animals are much larger than life. So these people were short. They were probably <laughs> about, you know, five and four feet. Oh, yeah. Uh, so oh, those yeah. are giants. Giants. It's an amazing accomplishment. Oh, it's these incredible. short hunter-gatherers running around barefoot could create this incredible art. Well, that's about all the time we have to, uh, to pack in. I have to ask Eleni to come back again because I'm sure she has one or two additional things that she's missed. <laughs> God bless you, Eleni, for doing this. I really appreciate it, and I can't wait to read your book. Okay, well, thank you. God bless you out there in uh, Rock Art Podcast land. See you on the flip-flop. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.